Hello and welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and today is the first edition of what I'm calling Unknown Scholars. This is the interview series. This is the interview sub-series, if you will, where I interview the authors of interesting or new books that are coming out featuring the unknown soldiers that this podcast discusses more than anything else. So this is my interview series where I find people I want to talk to who have something interesting to offer about our unknown soldiers. So today I have Mr. David Townsend from Surrey, England, author of the book My Road to Mandalay, compiled from his father's letters, available on Amazon, including Kindle, and from many different booksellers. I will post a link in the description to the Amazon listing. Uh, David wrote this book after finding 500 letters in a biscuit tin clearing out his father's house. They turn out to be pen pal letters from his father to his mother before they were married, as his father served in the British Army during the Second World War across three different continents. David decided to tell his father's story through these letters and with his own historical commentary, now published and available as My Road to Mandalay. David, good evening. Hi, hi, James. It's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, I'd like to be able to talk about uh, the book and my father's extraordinary journey. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. That's an, it, it really is an amazing, incredible story just to find these letters after so long and to understand so much more about what your father did during the war. And he did quite a lot. He was all over the place, man. I mean, he was just popping across the globe like it was nothing. So uh, please tell us a little bit more about these letters and what led you to write about your father's story. Okay, the, the background is that the, the letters were actually found in 2011, quite a long time ago, when I was actually clearing out my mother's loft. And uh, as you had said, they were in a biscuit tin. It was a, a foot square. It was an old metal thing. And it was absolutely full of letters. Now, I didn't know for a start that um, my mother and father had met as pen friends. That came out later. And when I cleared out the loft... There were so many, James, and and this is a clearing out operation that that wasn't the main thing on my mind. So I packaged them all up, I put them into folders, and I actually shipped them off to my father's sister, who is eight years his junior and and still alive today, actually. She um, spent 18 months actually reading and learning about her brother. Um, She'd been evacuated during the war, so she hadn't seen a lot of these letters, and she um, yeah, spent time on them. After that, I actually ended up going to Mandalay and um, finally wow. did a bit. Um, but it wasn't until lockdown that you know, in the UK here, we were locked down for a well. Initially, it was eighteen months, but um, the book came to shape between May twenty twenty, and I issued it in four different sections to friends and family, and it was really geared to friends and family and feedback I was getting was this needs a wider publication while we where we are today. Mm-hmm. So uh you actually went to Mandalay. I did not know that. Uh what was your experience oh. there? Uh did it feel different? <laughs> it, it was amazing. I have to say we my wife and I we were we were on a cruise and we ended up in uh or Rangoon as it used to be called. We left the um all the cruise people and took our own personal flight on the local airway up to Mandalay because this is what you know I wanted to check things out. My father had been there. I knew from the as well as letters, there were old newspapers and there were records of things that uh, he brought back with him. And I managed to convince a local hotelier to let me up on a balcony of hotel so I could take a picture of basically there's a big lagoon with a palace on the side and the 
and Lay Hill in the Rock. So, so it did bring it all to life. Um, when I got back from that trip, I did a, it was about 20 pages, just a summary for my cousins and my brothers and sisters. But that, that was in 2015. And then they, it wasn't again until 2020 that it all started to come together. Right. I think a lot of things, people found time for a lot of projects during the lockdown. Uh, I know I got into model painting for a while myself. Yeah, sure. yeah well, that's <laughs> I, I was, right. Yeah. I was pretty bad at it, to be honest with you. <laughs> but you see, it's something that you wouldn't have done if it hadn't been for lockdown. And it's the same with these letters, that I would have never done it if I, I found um, a, a diary of his home, which I'd never seen before, which is the last section of the book. And I, I typed that up initially, so, and that was what sparked it all off. Circulated that to friends and family, and then people said they want more. And then I started going through these letters, and I, um, there was an awful lot more to be told. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, how much of this of his your father's story did you pick up from the letters themselves, and how much from your dad's own words or recollections? Because I guess what I'm asking is, how much did your dad talk about it? He didn't talk about it at all. This this is why, for me, it's been a revelation. Um, basically, um, my father, he was a good father. I have two brothers, one older, one younger, and we were two years above, two years below, and I'm in the middle. My sister was 15 years later. Um, and basically, we were a family, but we, I think, parents focused on us rather than us asking the right questions. And um, he never even talked about it. I don't even know that he talked about it to his own friends, let alone his kids. And so the whole story of this, to me, was a revelation. I did actually, I had spent quite a lot of time playing with tank transporters, strangely. He definitely bought maybe for himself, and I ended up playing with them. But I uh, I hadn't really got the connection. And the other important thing, I guess, is that he passed on when I was 34, his he was eight, uh, 64. So at that time, I was two young children. I'm married. I'm focusing on them rather than on him. And I think if he'd have lived longer, if there'd been the time to change those stories, it would have happened. It, it, it didn't happen. Everything that I found out is new to me. I, I am very sorry to hear that. Um, but I'm glad that you're able to find these letters still and get that story anyway. Exactly. And, and that's the joy of the letters. Um, I think it's been pointed out to me before that people are going away and fighting in backers these days. They'd, they'd be on Skype, they'd be on, you know, media. And, and so having a written record, which is handwritten and very personal, um, has been a privilege for me. And it's hopefully, I mean, the reason of publishing it is to spread the word of this, the, the, the forgotten army, which, um, he was in for four years from start to finish um, and a battle of Mandalay and the retake of Burma, which very little people people very, know very little about. So it's a chance to spread the word. Right, right. Um, Forgotten Army, that sounds like something uh, right up our alley at the Unknown Soldiers podcast. But uh, I, I do know a fair bit, not as much as you certainly do or historians of the campaign, but I know, I probably know more than I guess most people, including the fact there even was a Burma campaign of the Second World War, it's uh if it's for if it's forgotten in Britain, it's downright obliterated in America. I think. Um, <laughs> I I don't I don't mean to say that, that it was not of course important, but it seems to be such 
for many Americans in their memory, it seems to be such a back burner. But we'll get we'll get to that more. Yeah. Okay, we'll get to it later. But um, yeah, what you'll find is that um, certainly the battle that were fought there, battles of Imphal, the Battle of Kahima, the Battle of Arakan, and the retake of Mandalay, actually really did change the way and the result of the Second World War. And just a, a little note here is that the Battle of Imphal, for example, the victory was declared two weeks after um, D-Day. Now, Europeans, Americans, everyone, they wanted to talk about D-Day. They didn't want to talk about this um, six-month, well, it was a four-month-long battle that right. cost 60,000 lives. It wasn't publicized, and that's, again, part of the reason to spread the word now. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm well aware that this entire campaign, World War II was such an enormous conflict that things that would have been top front page stories any other day just sort of get lost in the noise sometimes it's uh it's really frustrating for the people who did experience that i'm i might imagine for to feel like they weren't getting sort of the credit or the uh respect of someone who was on d-day when you know there were more casualties at the battles of impal and kohima than were on d-day yeah. itself yes from your your listeners' point of view, in America, everyone knows Pearl Harbor. You know, that was where the Japanese came into the war. Then went to Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia. Um, and then they started on Burma. And basically, that at that stage, uh, British troops were in there, but it was one of the largest retreats. This is in 1942. One of the biggest retreats the British Army had ever made. Um, the colonial view of, you know, people were saying, well, the Japanese will never fight in Burma. You can't fight through the jungles, etc., etc. Well, the Japanese hadn't read the war book. They, they hadn't <laughs> actually sort of read this colonial thing. They just carried on and on. And by the end of 1942, Burma was under their control. And they'd issued currency. It says Japanese currency of Burma in the north, uh, northeast corner. There was some Chinese, and their plan was then to come through between this Imphal and Kohima, go through to Assam, and then really there's a lot of unrest in India at that time. Their plan was to take over India next. Had that been allowed to happen, it would have been a very different result for uh, the whole of you know allies success oh absolutely this uh this almost forgotten campaign basically on the fringes of what people know about the second world war could have been a decisive factor i mean even if the uh even if they did not conquer india they would have certainly diverted many british and commonwealth resources and men from other fronts as well of course everything was feeding off each other in this conflict so it was very much a uh a very critical, but very often underrated, just gets overshadowed by the flashy stuff, you know, the History Channel documentary stuff. Exactly. And, and you know, those that are paying to make the films don't make mm -hmm. it about what their heroes, their own people were doing. Now, see, so you talk about India there. At the beginning of the Second World War, India had about 250,000 people, okay? By the 1945, they had 2.5 million soldiers. They played a huge part. The 14th Army that we're talking about here, it had 500,000 soldiers in it, covered 100,000 square miles. Um, 
the logistics and the supplies and the air control were huge. And what um, Field Marshal Slim, Bill Slim did when he took control, um, he transformed it into a fighting force that could move um, and 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 win, basically. Stunning. Um, so, yeah, we're jumping around a bit there, James, but that's, yeah, that's why, for me, the Forgotten Army should be not forgotten anymore. And what I found is that my father, having joined as a private a year in um, North Africa, then he got a commission in the Indian Army, um, played a surprising role. And I think you might also have seen that he ended up at the age of 25 as a major. Uh, extremely it's rapid promotion rate, yeah. He never mentioned it to me or my brother's sister's order. <laughs> right. So your father yeah. was in the uh, Royal Army Service Corps, right? Yeah. Essentially yeah. the supply service side of the British Army. And we talk a lot in this podcast in particular about the importance of the less flashy stuff, the logistics, maintenance, transportation that all make an army run. And your father's war service played an important part in that less glamorous, but very important side of things. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about your father's day-to-day duties in this campaign and how they helped the British Army operate in World War II? Okay, yes. Uh, let's just start out with, he joined on his birthday, 20th birthday, so he was 20 years old when he joined. He did some initial training at in Yorkshire um, and then at Aldershot, uh, which is two training camps. And basically at that stage, he was doing initial training, clerk duties. He went then to... Um, uh, a further one in South Wales, and eight months of what I would say clerky type duties, pay and that sort of thing. Very much service corps orientated. He then was shipped out to um, uh, to Cairo. Um, it was one of the largest convoys that went out. Twenty ships left Britain in January '41, not knowing where they were going to go, but they had they had been issued with. Um, Tropical kit, so they knew it was going to be somewhere warm. Um, basically, his first role was in the sand with other people in the Bitter Lakes, which is in the Suez. And one of his first transfers was going to be to Bang- Benghazi. Now, just a little bit about the war in um, Africa at that stage. Um, at this stage, this was March 42, and basically, Britain was doing a good job of winning. Uh, the, Wavell had actually basically got the Italians. The Italians were basically the, the Germans' main um, allies in North Africa. So they've been fighting there since 1936. So essentially, when my father went and arrived with many, many other troops in North Africa, um, Britain was doing rather well. Um, what had happened was that Hitler had said to a chap called Rommel, who wasn't a particularly high-ranking um, officer at that stage, he sent a small panzer d- division over to North Africa, and Rommel's orders were to report to uh, Gary Bordy, who was the um, the Italian commander, Italian leader, yeah, and look after Tripoli, protect <laughs> Tripoli. What happened was that Churchill, thinking we were winning, said, "Look um, to Wavell, our um, head of um, the campaign." I want 58,000 of your troops to go to Greece because they're my last stronghold in Europe. Send them now. And Wavell did. 
Rommel then thought, ah, there's an opportunity here. And he came much faster than expected. He'd actually arrived early to uh, Benghazi and then on to Tabuk. And it was my father who'd been posted to Benghazi. He was then turned round and said, come back. He got as far as Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Come back because uh, Benghazi has already been taken. Well, that was close. <laughs> well, see, by the time he got back, James, this is the thing. Most of the people that he'd come to North Africa with had been shipped out to, to Greece. And that, you may not, may or not know, but that for the Allies was a fiasco. Fiasco, absolute. Uh, ne- nearly annihilated those forces. They had barely evacuated by the skin of their teeth. It was exactly. um, an, an, just another fun little, uh, not so fun adventure on the, on the southern fringe of the European continent for the Allies in World War II. Exactly, exactly. And so, had it not been for this posting, my father would have been with them and dodged, you know, I think he dodged a couple of bullets here because he was then, um, this is the service side, but he was allocated to the um, supplies and transport section and based in um, Cairo. And his job for the next year was basically supplying the logistics side of the transport, the tank transporters or whatever. And he evidently did a good job because on Christmas Day, um, a tank with a German tank, a transporter with a German tank arrived outside their offices saying, thanks, chaps, you're doing a great job. Here's a present <laughs> to the 8th Army. <laughs> right, yeah. It's a, so tank transporter, that's um, essentially just a four-wheeled or larger truck that would transport an armored vehicle wherever it needed to go. And I imagine in Burma especially, that was an extremely important, necessary thing because of the rough terrain. So uh, yeah, yeah. They, they actually had 32 wheels. Oh wow, wheels, okay. I'm totally wrong about that. Continue. They were enormous. Um, and they were yeah, they were substantial vehicles. Um they they, they could hold 30 tons, you know. So they're they're big vehicles. Um and so what happened, yes, we were talking about, you know, the supplies, the that side of it, and he then he's been trying to get to somewhere where he feels he can play a bigger role. He actually had tried to um, get into what they call the long-range penetration forces, and then he tried to get to the front and didn't get there. And, and basically his um, superiors were saying, okay, you're already a private, but you're better at doing what you're doing than going off and leaving someone else. So he applied for a commission in the Indian Army. As I've mentioned, they were recruiting mm-hmm. British officers. They were increasing the size of the army. And he was the youngest amongst 25 officer recruits to leave Cairo in March '3, and then to go to his training in, in India, which he, which he did at the um, Dara Dun, which was their sandbox, if you like. So he's come from private, and now he's going to be an uh, officer in training with the Indian Army. All right. So, uh, so could you, for American audiences might not know, could you explain the difference between the British Army and the Indian Army? The Indian Army was a separate institution, right? Yes, but well, a separate, evidently uh, separate country. Evidently, um, at this stage, Britain has been a colonial power, if you like to put it that way. So a lot mm-hmm. of the Indian training and methods were based on British methods. At the same time, they're an individual country. They're totally apart. It wasn't actually until 1947 that they broke away, but they're very much aligned. They, you, 
he reported into India Command, got British Command, and later on you've got the Southeast Asia Command. There's, so there are different units of, of, of command within the with forces. But he's in the Indian Army, which is separate to the British Army. Right. Okay, cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, parallel but separate institutions. Exactly. We've got the same aim. They've got, they're got fighting against the same enemy. Right. So uh, your dad obviously went a lot of places during his service. He was uh, started out, of course, in Britain, but then he went to Egypt. He went to India, Burma. And what Burma, for people who don't know, is what is today called Myanmar. Exactly. But he describes meeting a lot of interesting people, and especially in Egypt. He talked about that a lot and observing just how they behaved and their customs and manners, a lot of which was he was pretty darn unfamiliar with. I've, um, I'm in the U.S. Army myself. I've traveled myself a bit and I met a lot of different folks from different countries. And I felt that it really broadened my horizons and my understanding of the world. Do you think uh, it affected your dad similarly? Do you think uh, it affected his beliefs or worldview? Um, I, well, I think certainly it was, it was a, a rude awakening and a big growing up period. There's no mm -hmm. doubt about that. I mean, in terms of his travel, I know that he had been to Calais. And I know that when he wrote his letter from Yorkshire, it was the furthest he'd ever been away from. You know, he's ever been spending a lot of time with the locals. He was abroad for six years. And so what you find is that it's not all fighting time. There is time to learn the local customs. He sort of spent time in the bazaars in Egypt. He was befriended by the Naga people when he was in um, Imphal. And these are people that are totally different. He was also, when he joined the Indian Army, he was required to learn Urdu, to speak Urdu. He was mm -hmm. responsible within, he was assigned to a British transport company that was largely staffed by Indians, nationalities. And he was responsible for everyone that wasn't a British officer. So during his time he and training with them, he, he liked to learn everyone's name. He liked mm. to sort of know and understand. When they um, get to, there were very few days off, but there were evidently days leave for the national customs of the, the Sikhs and for the Muslims and the other religions. And so... He was very much accepting that it was a coffee pot of nationalities he was within and responsible for. I think it probably did make him a very sort of wide-ranging acceptance man. I didn't know anything about his special beliefs as once he'd left the war and he was my father. Um, he wasn't a particularly religious man, but at the same time, he would never be against religion or anything like that. So I think it had a calming influence overall all right yeah that makes a lot of sense um the experiences we go through of course do change us and change the way we look at the world i guess Indeed. so so uh one of the odd things i keep noticing in your dad's letters is just this juxtaposition and contrast between this enormous conflict that everybody's in and his ability to have this recreation this sense of humor maintain this uh just sort of very what a fun story in some of his letters just intermixed with this yeah. battle scene this is um you know this he was a young man played a lot of sports enjoyed a lot of pastimes but uh what do you think about this weird side-by-side -side nature of lighter sides and darker sides of war I, I think part of it was his natural character that's um he he saw the whole thing as an adventure and he was definitely trying to get the most out of it from that side 
I think the other is that there are parts um, of the battle and things that he saw that, you know, it's a sort of a protective, um, you know, mechanism for him as well. But then again, I think he was also thinking very much about who was going to read it. He was reading right. in, writing initially to his family and to his sister. Mm. And then, as we've mentioned, he had a pen friend he'd never met before the war, who ended up as my mother, which is why oh, it's got a lovely, happy ending. Um, but he also was able to see the strangeness. I mean, there he is. I've got a quote here from you. I mean, he's, um, you know, in April 44, he's in the middle of the Battle of Imphal. He's got Japanese three miles away. They're listening to the sound of their guns. And he said, Imagine us here as we Japs three miles away in one direction, being smoothed as the sleep each night by confronting sound of our guns, and some twerk manages to find a form which asks, <laughs> do you reside abroad for your sake of your health, and do you claim to be a British subject? If so, on what grounds? Now, <laughs> so he's got the income tax form, arrived as he's fighting for his country, and they're saying, well, you know, are you a missionary or something? What are you doing there? Um, <laughs> Find the funny side of things. And another example, um, he's basically, uh, as he said, um, having a bomb. They get bombed a dozen bombs each day, some come. And, and so he's basically saying, Those mothers, fathers, fatherless sons of the sun caught me napping the other evening. <laughs> Not exactly napping, as Townie had decided after a quiet day to take his bath. And then he just stepped into the utility five inches of water and splashed himself from A to B, went down with the daily dozen. I suppose my evasive action was as quick as anyone else's, but diving into a dusty trench, because they're all in trenches for protection, right? Uh, nothing on and coming out covered in a film of mud doesn't help. Go on, laugh. I know you will, but please don't overuse that fertile imagination. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, he's getting bombed, but he's still got the sense of humor. So I just take my hat off. It's incredible. Absolutely. Uh, reminds me of the saying: uh, "There's two th inevitable things in life: death and taxes." And for him, on that day, they were just right next to each other. How about that? It's a uh, this. Absolutely. It is uh, the strange nature of modern war: just the bureaucracy and the uh, the general odd humor that just comes out of such a stressful situation. I imagine must be must must gotten this mixed reaction but a very humorous and very uh you know calm reaction out of him yeah yeah there's no doubt about that and um, you know there's another one where once uh, peace was declared um this was after the battle of mandalay in fact not quite when peace was declared but after the celebrations in rangoon he was um coming back and um he he's also had another letter told an upset he's had with his own um colonel and he said <laughs> um He's just found that there's a, a jeep that had broken down. He says, Core up springs the body and it's a real life major general. I <laughs> said, not, but it's okay. He's gulping much more than I am. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, thank God you're here. Yes, please help me. What's, what's the time? Seven. Ooh. And then this guy says, I'm dining with the Supremo, who is Lord Mountbatten at mm -hmm. 7.30. What shall I do? Supremo is Lord, yes. And there was only one thing for it. I gave him a direct order, get in, and then asked him where he wanted to go. And that guy was the actual future um, governor general of Burma. 
thousand people in the 14th Army. How is my father the one that save, as I put it in the book, saves the general? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a uh, big sense of humor. Well, ma- makes Uber look like a bunch of amateurs, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's another part of that story where he's invited back to the um, uh, the officers' mess while um, the the guy is getting ready, and uh, he orders him to pour a gin and tonic for for the chap that's helping me, which he does. And my father ends up having two gin and tonics, um, and then <laughs> he drinks the wrong one and upsets one of the other guys that's happening his back. So, yeah, <laughs> lots of stories within in the stories. Right. So, um, I mean, there's obviously a lot you learned from your dad's letters that you didn't know before, considering he just didn't really talk about it much. Um, do you think the experiences of an individual officer, I know he's your dad, there's this personal connection, but for, you know, the rest of us, for, I think there's a lot an individual experience can teach us. No one person can ever give us the whole complete picture of any historical event, but Every historical event is made up of these single experiences. What do you think your dad's letters can tell uh, historians, readers, or, and you know, theoretically podcast listeners about the conflict? Well, I think what they can do is tell the, the readers, listeners, the real side of war. Um, as you say, in films and in, in cinema and that sort of thing, what you're seeing is all the action all the time. When these battles go on for a number of years, it's not battle all the time the people that are there they have to live they have to get to know and understand their surroundings they have to get to know and understand the customs and they have to survive as well and they survive the camaraderie between them the interaction and within these letters the importance that people at home play by writing to them and raising morale and keeping morale um, up and there's no doubt at all that these letters played a huge part in, you know, raising morale, not only of my father, but of the other people that were with him and that sort of thing. So I think there's lots to be learned. And every battle is a human being at the end of the day. It's right. fought by human being, people that matter and people that all do have a story to tell. But whether they tell it or not, it's down to them after. I think there's loads to be learned. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the individual story and the broader story, you can you can get both, of course. But I think at the end of the day, the individual stories together are what make up the broader story. Exactly. I'm very interested in uh, the, I mean, this name of the podcast. I'm very interested in the experiences of these unknown soldiers, especially in the unknown campaigns like the Burma campaign. So um, I'm going to close with a bit of a more personal question, if that's okay with you, David. Sure, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so if it, uh, has this helped you feel closer to your dad? Do you feel like you know him better? Or th- was this a side of him that you'd really never seen before? Um, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so much of his. I think there's so, two sides. One is I've learned more about him. There's definitely a sense of pride from my side of what he did do. Uh, there's a touch of sadness in a way that I think if he had shared them or if I'd have asked the right questions, I'd have learned more about him at the right time. But other than that, I've also think certain qualities that I have, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I got more from him than I thought. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, and there's also the element that I'm I'm very pleased that um, for my brothers, my sisters, cousins, or whatever, that a story has come out maybe that we didn't know before, and we've learned a huge amount about him and about what he did, 
that would uh, otherwise not be available for enjoyment. So yeah, I'm very privileged to have the letters and to have uh, had the ability to get it all together, James. All right, that's that's great to hear. I'm glad you um I'm glad you found these letters. Not only are they um you know just an excellent story for anyone who reads them. As I, again, I'm going to keep reminding the audience that uh it is available on Amazon. It's available on Kindle. It's five dollars. You spend more at Starbucks. <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, I was I was just checking earlier. It is absolutely five dollars. It's steel, it's a steel for this excellent story of you know this individual just expl- you know going through this conflict, going through uh an enormous war with a lot of sense of humor, just when it's a very multifaceted, very interesting experience. This just a a fella at war. And uh, of course, a very important fella to you. But I think it's interesting just the fact that we're able to see this side, this very interesting human being experiencing this conflict that we see on the television or the documentary or something. But he's we're seeing it in real time. We're getting these letters in real time as if we're reading them day to day ourselves. Well, I just point out, I mean, in, in the book, all of the letters are in date order, so that mm. it's a sequence from 13th of June 1940 when he said, and it just follows through day by day or week by week, you know, as the story of the week, uh, the work that, of the war unfolds. And the other side is that when I started doing this, I, I was, you know, in a complete ignorance about what he had done, but also my knowledge of the war. So within the book as well, there is a little section on each that tells the reader what's happening in war when he joins up, what's happening in North Africa when he gets there, and what's happening in Burma and the background. So mm. it's all together that I hope people enjoy. Absolutely. it's. Uh, I was noticing that as well when I was reading it. It was very, very helpful, especially for general audiences who might not know much about this side of the war. I, I tend to joke that American knowledge of World War II fixates on Pearl Harbor, D-Day, and Zilch, but it's uh, but it's not something that everybody's exposed to all the time. Um, it's not something that you know. I, when I started doing this podcast, a small personal story, but I was trying to decide what to talk about, and I had a friend tell me, James, what's obscure to you is not what's obscure to everyone else. <laughs> no, and then the other side, there were an enormous number of Americans were involved in the retake of Burma. Oh yes, and and between the. The, the big retreat and the mm. success that happened in the you know in the later stages, the Americans were instrumental in the airdrops that they were making to the troops that was, was enabling the troops to dig in and not to retreat. And interesting sections in the book you'll find that you know when the downtime happens, my father actually gets together with some of the American pilots mm-hmm. and they did what they call bully bombing, which is basically still he went up and they're pushing out rations to forces, Americans, British, Indians, East Africans, whoever, who are still fighting the forward positions against the Japanese as, it, you know, main thrust is finished, but there are still skirmishes going on. And so the Americans played a huge role as well. Um, right. And, you know, where we talk about the Mandalay and, and his success there, the Americans and the Chinese were very much involved in, other aspects, the Mexicala and, and so forth, and the, you know, where, again, it would have been a res- different result if they had a help as well. It was a really big allied effort. So, very much in the American court, they should know that. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, we, sh- we absolutely should know about it. I agree with that. That was the, um, this was the 
Burma Road, Lido Road campaign up in the far northeast uh, with the Galahad Force, the predecessor of the modern uh, U.S. Army Rangers, If, but most folks do not know about that. No, no, no. And, and again, again, your podcast will help publicize that as well, I'm sure. So Absolutely. We're going to change it from the forgotten army to the not forgotten army. I, w- I, w- I would love for most armies to be less forgotten, but certainly this one, this was, it really was an incredible campaign, very complex. Um, there's not just the Americans and the British, of course, but there's the Chinese, the many Commonwealth partners, including African units fighting in Burma, which is um, a lot of people might not know. A lot of people might not know that, uh, that there were even African units fighting outside Africa in the Second World War at all. But there, there's all sorts of surprises. You find people popping up all over the place in this conflict just because of the global nature of it. Like someone like your dad can go from England to Egypt to India to Burma. And there's no telling all the other journeys all these people went through. So I think it's very valuable, very, uh, very important that you're telling these kinds of stories, that you're finding these that you're you turn these letters into something for you know the general audience to learn from and digest from and to understand the global complex nature of this conflict. I think it's a very important service you're doing, David. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm just hoping that people enjoy it, and it's been a pleasure to be with you, James. Mm-hmm. All right, it's been an excellent pleasure to have you on the show. I, I really thank you for approaching me and uh, asking to do this interview, and it's been. Personally, an amazing experience, and I loved reading your book. Once again, this is uh, My Road to Mandalay, on available on Amazon, Kindle, wherever quality books are sold. It's certainly well within your budget. I mean, like I said, you spend more McDonald's. So um, once again, I'm going to thank you for coming on, David. It's been a pleasure, and I hope you have all the success in your future endeavors, and I hope your book finds the success it deserves. Thank you very much indeed. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Once again, that was David Townsend, author of My Road to Mandalay, available wherever good books are sold. And I hope you've enjoyed this first interview, this first edition of Unknown Scholars. There'll be many more to come, I hope, as long as I can rope some more people into these interviews. So once again, the podcast's current schedule is over, but you will see me again in September for season two. See you then, but maybe before then, only here on Unknown Soldiers.